0: We are going to go through the life of Thomas. And so I've titled this message, This Isn't What I Expected. So if you don't mind, before I pray to open our service, as you close your eyes, could you just, whether it's on your lap or up, just put your palms towards the ceiling as a symbol of of our surrender to Jesus for what he has for us this morning. And Lord Jesus, as we come before you and we celebrate the fact that death did not have the final say with you, that Lord, as we look to you, Jesus, we're carrying a lot. Within these hands that we're holding, we're carrying, whether it's stress at work or Maybe we don't know how our next bill is going to be paid. Maybe we're dealing with some relationship struggles. Uh, Maybe we just come in here and we're on our last wit and we just have no idea why we're coming to church. We don't know if you are the Messiah or if you are who you say you are. With all those things, God, we carry in our hands and we lift those up and we surrender those to you. And God, we just pray that you would meet with us here. That our hearts would be open and our minds would be open to the things that you have for us here in this space. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we are very quick to define people based off of one moment in their life, whether in the positive or in the negative. And for many of these individuals, they weren't the ones to ask for the labels that they were given whether that be Steve Bartman forever being known known as the fan who reached out to grab a foul ball that, let's be honest, he wasn't going to catch in the 2003 NLCS game, Cubs fans, rest. You got a championship a few years ago. Or Paul Revere, who so famously has been known for his declaration that the Redcoats are coming, or Rosa Parks for her resistance in giving up her seat in Birmingham, Alabama. And for many of you, you might be defined by one moment or a particular event in your life. But we're often super quick to define people based off of one moment. Again, both in the positive and in the negative. And this morning, we read about one of those disciples that we call Thomas. And we see this one story of his interaction with the resurrected Messiah. And because of this passage, Thomas has forever been labeled or marked by this passage. Does anyone know the name that Thomas has been labeled with? Doubting Thomas, well done, church kids. But throughout church history, which by the way, once again, Thomas did not give himself this name. But this has been a name that church historians and scholars and theologians have given to nickname Thomas. Doubting Thomas. That doesn't seem like a cool nickname to me. Because if we look throughout scripture, some of the other disciples have, I think, some cooler nicknames. The first one is Cephas, who is later renamed Peter, which means rock. That sounds cool. Take that, Dwayne Johnson. You have James and John who were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. That's cool. And then the guy who wrote the gospel account that we're looking at, John, so famously labeled himself, by the way. He labeled himself the one that Jesus loved. Those are some cool names like Rock, Sons of Thunder, the one Jesus loved. And then we have Doubting Thomas which i think is extremely unfair for us to call thomas doubting thomas because doubting is a verb but it's a terrible adjective especially for thomas so if you have a physical bible let's go back and look at some of thomas's story throughout the gospel of john So if you don't mind going back with me to John chapter 14, or if you have your digital Bible, you can go to your Bible app, not Facebook. Please don't check out yet. But John chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 1. To give a little context to this passage, Jesus is preparing his disciples ultimately for what Jesus came here to do. He is getting prepared to eventually go to the cross and be beaten, mocked, and crucified. He has already washed their feet. He's warned of Judas's betrayal and he predicts Peter's denials. Immediately after Jesus predicts Peter's denials, he goes straight into John chapter 14 starting in verse 1. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am going, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. We'll stop there for a second, because at this point, for those of us that have been following Jesus for a while or have attended the Bible class that you guys have all done since you shouted Doubting Thomas, but we know on this side of the story, we know exactly what Jesus is talking about. We know that when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, that that was something that Jesus was going back to heaven to prepare a place for his disciples. And if you look at the context within this passage, there's a lot of cultural things that we can miss but that there would be a bridegroom who would go to his father's house to actually build and prepare a place for his family. And when he would come back for his bride, his bride would know that her bridegroom was ready to take her back to their home. And that Jesus here is giving the analogy that he as the husband to us, the bride of Christ, that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us and that he is going to come back to take us back to our eternal home. On this side of the story, we know exactly what Jesus is talking about. But then we get to verse five and check Thomas's response. Lord, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Which some people would say, that sounds like a lot of doubting. Come on, Thomas, don't you know? But in that moment, I would argue that Thomas isn't giving a response of doubt. This is a response of a student desiring to gain clarity from his rabbi. Since Thomas is a disciple, he is a student under Jesus, who is his teacher. And in this response, and in particular in this question, how can we know the way, he is a good student who is desiring clarity on the teacher's teaching which for the teachers that are in this room, if students ask clarifying questions, you're probably not going to get frustrated. You're going to love that the student is actually asking questions to try to get the point. And Thomas here is a good student. He wants clarity on the way. So I would say from this story, Thomas isn't a doubter. He's a good student. Let's go backward to John chapter 11. This will be the last story that we look at for Thomas before we get back to John chapter 20. Um, If you want to go to verse 16 of John chapter 11, to give context to this story in John chapter 11, Jesus has received word that one of his closest friends, Lazarus, is sick. And after two days, he tells the disciples that he's heading to Judea to see Lazarus. And at that point in the story, you're like, okay, cool, he's gonna go do his thing. But yet, if you go even further back, before John chapter 11, you would see that the people in Judea were literally just a few days earlier trying to stone Jesus. A few days later, Jesus is saying, I'm gonna go back. And the disciples so kindly remind him, like, Jesus, don't you know? These guys were trying to kill you. And Lazarus is sick. You could just, like, snap your fingers and make him good. Why do you got to go back? And then Jesus clearly tells him that Lazarus isn't asleep, that he has died, and that he is going to him. And then verse 16, check Thomas's response. Then Thomas called twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too, so that we may die with him. Does that sound like a doubter to you? He's prepared to go with his Messiah, with his Savior, with his rabbi, to go back to a place where for Thomas to declare Jesus Lord, Was such a radical declaration that it could have cost Thomas his life and that he's rallying the disciples, being the leader in that moment saying, let's go too so that we could die with our rabbi. So I think at this point, could we just refrain from calling Thomas doubting Thomas? Forever labeling this disciple as a doubter but instead as a good student of our Messiah. So let's go back to the story we read this morning. Uh, John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. Um, and we'll park here for the remainder of the morning and dive a little bit more into this interaction and what this means for us. So as you're turning there and as you get there, I want to go on a journey with us to kind of put us in Thomas's shoes. Because once again, it's easy for us on this side of the story to look at Thomas' responses and be able to have our own critical remarks. But let's put ourselves in his shoes for a second. Going back to the very beginning of Thomas's journey, he was one of the 12 chosen to be an apprentice of Jesus, the Son of God, Emmanuel, the Redeemer, the Savior, Israel's long-awaited Messiah. That Jesus could have chosen anybody. But Thomas was one of the 12. And he dropped everything, his home, his career, his family, all the things he considered near and dear to him. He left it all behind. He didn't have a hand in one bucket and his hand over in the Jesus bucket. He was all in. Jesus had called Thomas to a intimate following of Jesus, and he left it all behind to follow Jesus closely, not merely for a weekend men's conference, but a day-in, day-out following. He left everything, and for over three years. So just to backtrack, that'd be like from 2019 until about now which that's been a long three years, am I right, church? But for three years, Thomas and Jesus had broke bread together. They had laughed together. They had cried together, traveled together. And that Thomas was an eyewitness as he saw things that we, as we read the Gospels, marvel over. He saw Jesus heal the sick, cast out demons. He saw Lazarus be raised from the dead. He saw Jesus walking on water, calming the storms, and and preaching with heavenly authority. Thomas was a eyewitness of all of that. He had walked intimately with Jesus through all of that. And Jesus had already proven to Thomas time and time again that he is who he said he was. And then the unexpected happened. Jesus was arrested for crimes that he didn't commit. He was beaten and mocked, spit on, wore a crown of thorns, nails on his wrist, nails in his feet, pierced side. Church, Messiahs don't die. Kings don't die. Not the way that Jesus did. And for three years, he's walking so close with Jesus. And then what feels like that, he died. That wasn't part of the plan. At least that the disciples had planned out because they knew the prophecies that the son of David would be the one to eternally sit on the throne and rule forever. How can a king rule if he's died? So imagine how Thomas and the disciples are feeling. They're probably feeling a little abandoned, confused, heartbroken ashamed, and fearful. They had risked it all. Those three years with Jesus, they had dropped everything, declaring that Jesus is king, that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited one to finally redeem Israel. And their king had died. that's why in John chapter 20 verse 19 it says that the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. And at that point in John chapter 20 verse 19 Jesus does show up to the disciples. Unfortunately Thomas wasn't there but Jesus shows up. Jesus breaks through the locked doors appeared in flesh to them And those disciples had just witnessed and heard the greatest news that their king was alive. They had seen him crucified. He had been dead for three days, but yet they had seen the risen Messiah. Our king defeated death. And yet Thomas wasn't There in that particular moment. But I believe that Thomas wasn't there in that particular moment for Thomas's good. So let's get to the story. Verse 24. But Thomas, called twin, one of the disciples was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. Because regardless of where Thomas was, he, wasn't one of the last, he was one of the last disciples to see the resurrected king. We don't know where he was. He could have been out grocery shopping or trying to figure out which way was up. Needless to say, we know that at this point, Thomas had not seen Jesus. And the disciples come to him saying, we've seen him. He's alive. And then catch Thomas's response. But he said to them, If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. And this response might seem like Thomas is doubting. Because that seems pretty harsh. That he would have to physically put his hands into his wounds and touch him before he could believe that he's alive. But yet, as we've already seen, Thomas was there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. So I think cognitively, he was aware that dead things could come to life. Because I don't think he was doubting. The word that Thomas used here at the end of his response, the word, Believe is actually an interesting Greek word. And often our English translations miss the depth of that word. Because when I say the word believe, we often use that merely as an academic exercise to be able to somehow intellectually grasp that something is a potential reality. Like I could believe that pigs fly or that the Cleveland Guardians could win the World Series. I could believe that here, but not here, because we've associated belief with just a mental exercise, but yet this word believe in the original language is this word pisteu, and this word pisteu has such a deep meaning. It's not just a mental assent to be able to understand something, but this word has a better intent, and I would argue that this word's best translation is the word trust, because I don't think Thomas was a doubter. I think that Thomas was wrestling with trust because he had walked so closely and intimately with Thomas for three years, seen all of this. Everything was lining up for him to be who he said he was, and then he died. And at that moment, I don't believe Thomas was doubting as an intellectual thing that Thomas was actually wrestling with, can I trust him? because his plans had been shattered and broken. With everything that he had experienced, he knew it was within the realm of possibility that Jesus could be raised from the dead, because Jesus did say in John eleven twenty five, 25, before resurrecting Lazarus, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Because I don't think Thomas was wrestling with doubt, but he was wrestling with trust. In that moment, Thomas was wrestling with trust. Let's keep going in the story to verse 26. A week later. A week later. Not like two hours. Not like, oh, I'll check my Twitter feed to see if Jesus had posted lately. A week later Imagine how Thomas was feeling in the midst of that waiting. He had heard the Messiah was risen, but yet a week later. Imagine the emotions what's going through his head and his heart. The prayers maybe in anguish and confusion, the questions he has, the anger that he has. Even asking questions like, God, can I can I trust Jesus? Can I trust you? Can I trust like this testimony that he is risen? He's probably asking all of these questions within that week. But a week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Yay! He's there. He's in the scene. This is lovely. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And that Jesus once again breaks through the locked doors to be with the disciples. Which that alone is a sermon. Like Jesus breaking through locked doors to be with the disciples and that Jesus ultimately after his resurrection was breaking through the locked doors of the disciples' hearts so that he may re-enter them so that the disciples could trust him. And so Jesus enters the scene again, says, peace be with you, which he said a week earlier. And then we get to verse 27, which it seems as if Jesus comes straight into the door, like does whatever he does with entering a locked room. He shows up and it looks like the scene goes straight from like, peace be with you. Thomas is here. Bang. Thomas, I got something for you, buddy. It seems as if he instantly looks straight at Thomas and addresses him. Verse 27, then he says to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And in years previous when I had read this passage and when Jesus responds, I imagined as if he was like a frustrated parent with this three-year-old kid. Maybe that just shows a little bit too much about how I read that passage for many years. But I imagine Jesus being frustrated. Like you had a week to stew over this. You had already heard from so many people that I had risen and yet, dude, you gotta touch my hands. Are you kidding me? After all we've been through, man? Okay, put your finger here, 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 here. Believe me. But yeah, I believe if... The character of Jesus is consistent. And the more that I've thought, prayed over this text, the more that I believe that Jesus in this moment was filled with compassion, grace, and love, understanding that interior battle that he had been wrestling with for a week plus. And that for those of us that we imagine that when We're in a posture of maybe we don't know if we can trust in Jesus again. We think that Jesus is that like upset parent that is just ready to like just be so frustrated at you to where you finally like are submitted into obedience. But yeah, I believe that Jesus is a good shepherd and that he's filled with compassion and grace and love. And that as Jesus responds to Thomas here, I believe it is out of a posture of the utmost love. And it's interesting in the last sentence that Jesus says, don't be faithless but believe. The word faithless and believe is that same word pisteu that we had looked at earlier. Because the word here that Jesus says for don't be faithless, it is apisteu, which is the opposite of pisteu. So Jesus more literally is saying, don't be lacking in trust, but trust me. Jesus wasn't upset that Thomas didn't intellectually understand all of these things, but that Jesus, as a gracious and compassionate Messiah and friend, is inviting Thomas to trust him again. And then we check Thomas's response, the next verse. Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. that I don't believe it was because Thomas touched the wounds that he was able to believe, but Jesus' invitation that said, don't be lacking in trust, but trust me, that as Jesus opened his heart and said, you can trust me again, that that is what made Thomas believe, not the touching of the wounds. And that I think for many of us in this room, we have a Savior who is ready to meet us in the midst of our distrust of him. Even for those of us that wave the Christian flag and we've chosen the way of Jesus, we have all had moments where we've maybe come to an impasse, or there's been hard times in our lives and dark seasons where it feels like there's no end. And we're at this place where we're like, Jesus, we've heard all the things that you've done, but in my current circumstances, I don't know. This is really hard. I'm looking around and it seems like evil is winning, darkness is winning, and I don't know what to do. You've done all of these good things for all of these people and yet I'm in the midst of some deep anguish and I don't know if I can trust you anymore. Because the past few years have been extremely hard and dark and difficult for many of us. And that I believe this Easter season, Jesus, like he did with Thomas, is welcoming us to trust Jesus again. That even though our circumstances might seem less than ideal, maybe because the news outlets are highlighting all of the evil that seems to be going on around us and the dysfunction and the sin that is so all over this world, but as all those things are being highlighted yet, I believe Jesus in the midst of that is showing up in particular here in this place and he's speaking to your heart and he's saying, you can trust me. It might not get easier, but because I conquered the grave, because evil doesn't have the last say, that by Jesus triumphing over the grave, he has the key to death and Hades. He has the victory in Jesus as our risen Messiah and Savior. And yes, Jesus didn't come to establish the nation of Israel, but he actually came to sit on David's throne, meaning to establish the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven, that Jesus is sitting on his throne. It just didn't look like the throne that the disciples were looking for. And in the midst of all that, Jesus is opening up his scarred arms with scars on his backs from the whips that he unjustly bore on our behalf. And Jesus is opening up his arms to you and me this morning. And he's saying, Come, bring your mistrust, bring whatever you are carrying, and trust me. Because he has proven through conquering the grave, that he is a God that we can trust. And I love that Jesus, after he resurrects from the grave, he meets different disciples and followers in a very personal way. And because in the midst of whatever you're going through, we do have a God that is willing and ready to meet you where you're at. Because I know as I look out in the midst of these people that we are all coming this morning with different life circumstances, different situations. And we're all in different places when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with the world. But yet we have a resurrected Savior who is ready to meet you exactly where you are at, not where you think that you should be. And there are two characters I want to look at briefly this morning of how beautiful our Savior meets us where we're at. The first is in, in the case of Mary Magdalene. The story is in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. but just to give a brief overview of the passage, so the tomb has been empty, stone's been rolled away. Mary comes because she's taking care of Jesus, and yet Jesus' body is gone. Jesus reports it back to the disciples. The disciples have a foot race. Apparently, John is faster than Peter. So when you get to heaven and you talk about foot speed, John's going to forever have the victory there. Of course, John records it. It's his gospel. But anyways, they see that the tomb is empty. They go back. They tell everybody else, but Mary stays. She lingers a little bit because she didn't know what had happened with Jesus. They knew the tomb was empty. They knew that the body wasn't there, but yet Mary lingered. Then it's interesting that as the story continues, that she stays and there are people that ask her, woman, why are you crying? And Mary responds, because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing that he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Verse 17 of John 20, don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to the Father and your Father to my God and your God. And then Mary goes in and boldly proclaims the first Easter sermon. So how did Jesus meet Mary In this way for her, by revealing himself to her first, he affirms the love that he has for her. And in a cultural that radically negates the value of women, he entrusted Mary and her testimony to proclaim to his followers the best and first Easter sermon ever preached. That Mary, throughout her life, if you know much about the history of Mary Magdalene, I encourage you as you read through the Gospels, just take note of Mary's journey. But Mary was one who had seven demons. It was cast out of her, and she eventually became one of Jesus' closest and most intimate followers. And yet it wasn't because Jesus asked the questions that Mary was able to identify the risen Savior, but yet it was because she had heard the all-familiar sound of her Messiah's voice call out her name. that Jesus was affirming Mary and his love for her. And she begins to go back to the disciples and boldly proclaims that she has seen the Lord. Then the second story is the story of Simon Peter in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. So after Thomas, Jesus revealed himself to Simon Peter as him and a bunch of other people. Thomas is on the boat, but Peter goes fishing because after the resurrection... Peter didn't know what to do, but he went back to what was familiar, which he was a fisherman. So he's out fishing and trying to catch fish, and Jesus calls out to him, and long story made short, told him to cast the nets on the right side, and they were able to catch a whole bunch of fish. And then after a little bit of some conversation with this mysterious guy on the, on the shoreline, Peter recognizes that it's Jesus. He takes his outer clothes, ties it around his waist, and he dives straight into the water in typical Peter fashion and swims straight to the shore and as he comes back Jesus calls out in John chapter 21 verse 12 come and have breakfast and it's interesting at this point in the story Peter comes sprinting back to his savior like swims quite a ways to come back to him which like a week or so earlier, he had denied Jesus three times. And it's interesting as he comes up to the shore and as he sees Jesus, Jesus is already cooking breakfast, which that's another point. Like I would have been really frustrated if I were Peter. Like if Jesus would have just told me he had breakfast, I would have just like forgotten all about the fish and just went right back to Jesus because he apparently had already caught some fish. But yet Peter approaches the shore, sees Jesus cooking around a charcoal fire. If you know the story, the last time that Peter was around a charcoal fire was when he had denied Jesus three times. So as he approaches, the look of the fire, the smells of the charcoal, and as he looks at the very Savior that he had denied three times, the smells, the sights, the sounds most likely had triggered within Peter memories of when he had denied Jesus three times earlier. And yet Jesus around that fire while cooking fish asked the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he asked the question three times to restore and redeem the three times that Peter had denied his Savior. How beautiful and loving and all knowing our Savior is, who meets us where we are at, not where we think that we should be. And so, in closing, a lot of you guys might be thinking, cool, this is great. Love the disciples' stories. Thomas, we won't call him Doubting Thomas, that's cool. Peter got some fish and got restored and Mary did her thing. But what does all of this have to do with me? What does this have to do with us? Like, it's great. We get it now, like Jesus is the Messiah. Woohoo! We get dressed up. We'll go, like, eat our Easter candy later, crash for a nap, do all the good things. But what does this story have to do with me? What does it have to do with us? Like I said earlier, I think in the midst of what we have gone through over the past few years, we have all had some difficult circumstances in which if we were honest, we've whether it's doubted Jesus' presence or have lost our trust in him over a few events like this, something called a pandemic that has been really difficult on many of us political divisions within our country's communities and our families and in our churches over the past few years we've had continued patterns of racial profiling and injustice in our country we've had tensions within our school districts because of the pandemic policies curriculum agendas and the list can go on as Brian prayed this morning, we have a war in Ukraine that's going on. There's been hardships within our church family that we have faced over the past few years. There have been friendships and marriages that have been damaged and terminated over the past few years. And there are people who, once looked up, who were once looked up to as heroes of the faith who had either a huge moral failure or a falling away from Jesus. It's easy for us to look back over the past few years and be like, well, Jesus is sovereign, which amen, that's true. But for many of us, our lived experience hasn't necessarily matched the warm and fuzzies. Because I'll be honest, over the past few years, I've had plenty of those moments where I've looked at my circumstances, I've looked at what's going on around me and some things that I personally was dealing with, and I had personal moments where I'm like, Jesus, is this really worth it? Is it really worth the pain and the struggle to continue to follow you? Can I trust you? I've had plenty of those moments over the past few years where I have just sat alone, just crying and anxious and just crying out to my God why all of this has happened. But yet, we serve a Savior and a God who as scripture says that he bore all of those things And he's familiar with suffering. That Jesus has gone through all the things that we have and yet without sin. And it's interesting too, before Jesus was crucified, Jesus was wrestling with some stuff too. As Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was wrestling with whether he wanted to go to the cross or not. But Jesus was able to quickly say, yet not as I will, but as you will. Because in the midst of those prayers, as Luke records in Luke 22, being in anguish, Jesus prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus is familiar with hardship. He's familiar with struggle. Because as Isaiah so beautifully says in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5, talking about the future Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried out our pains, but in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. And even in the midst of his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane and as he surrendered to the will of God, as the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God because we do have a resurrected king with scars on his wrist, wound in his side, who is seated in the heavenlies and is wooing and welcoming us to trust him again. Yeah, regardless of where you are at, regardless of the shame that you came in here carrying, regardless of where you stand with Jesus right now, that Jesus is big enough to handle your questions. He's big enough to handle your mistrust. He's big enough to handle the sins and the shame that you are currently carrying but because Jesus ultimately carried the weight of that sin and that shame on the cross. And he shed his blood so that you could be forgiven and redeemed. And he defeated the sting of death by raising from the dead. And he did all of this so that we could trust in him again. And as we choose to take that free invitation to trust him again, then as the passage in John 20 goes that we actually have a promise on the back end of this, Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me, you have trusted. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet trust. That family, we are blessed as we choose to continue to surrender and trust Jesus. And between the story of Thomas and the story of Peter in John's gospel, John gives a brief little paragraph explaining why he wrote the gospel. So if you still have your Bibles open in John chapter 20, starting at verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe, same word pissed at you, so that you may trust That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by trusting, you may have life in his name. We can trust again, church, because he has risen from the grave. And Jesus has promised us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And that eventually, as the disciples were praying in that upper room, that the Spirit of God descended and that the presence of God now is forever within the midst of those who have chosen to follow Jesus. So we never have to doubt if Jesus is there because for those of us that have the Spirit of God, for those who have trusted in the name of Jesus, we have the presence of God with us as we go.